What is up, EOS community? Welcome, everyone, to the EOS Fireside Chat for August 2nd, 2023. We've got a great show for you today. Some of the top developers in the EOS space are joining us today. We've got nine topics, six speakers. We'll be kicking off the show with some Antelope 5.0 features discussion with none other than Guillaume and Areg. And then following that up with Nathan James talking about a new EOS developer Twitter handle that recently surfaced at Build on EOS. And then we'll quickly touch on the Futurist conference going on in Toronto. Some of the ENF people are going to be there, some of the EOS community, other EOS community members as well. Pomelo Season 6 analysis report was just released. We'll cover the highlights. There's some important milestones that were reached for Wharf today. Aaron will be talking to us about that. And then, of course, we'll do the EOS EVM roundup. There's an app called Orlando that is powered by EOS. I'll be giving a quick recap of that article that was recently published. Gate.io integrates EOS EVM. Zach will be talking a bit about what that means for the network. And also another integration with PIP Network as an oracle. And then our last topic is a quick shout out to the ENF China team for their YouTube uh, review of the Q2 report. And then of course, open mic for our community, off topic banter, you guys want to talk about curve maybe, whatever it is, um, that's what will be on the agenda. All right, so let's jump right into our top story of the day. Antelope 5.0 features, and I'm going to just hand off the mic to Guillaume and Areg as they give us a little bit of an overview about what's coming in Antelope 5.0. Guillaume, are you with us right now? Yes, I am. All How's right. Welcome back to the fireside. Seems like you're becoming a bit of a regular guest lately. I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm sure a lot others are enjoying it. So thanks for joining us again today. My pleasure. Always always great to be here. Um, so I guess I guess I'll, I'll let Eric start because uh, yeah, like you said, I'm I've been here uh, quite often in the last few weeks. So I'll let um, Eric start. Maybe uh, uh, you can give us a bit of an update, uh, not update, but a uh, bit of an overview on uh, what we've been working on. Can uh, tell the community what, what what we've been up to. I think uh, they they'd love to hear it from you. Sure. Yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. I haven't been here for a little while. <laughs> Busy with uh, development and, and working on features. So um, I'm going to give an update on uh, what's coming up with Leap 5.0. Um, a lot of my time now is spent on EOCVM, uh, but beyond that, uh, focused on still supporting Leap and particularly on instant finality that I've been working closely with uh, Guillaume on. So, Leap 5.0, um, Antelope Leap 5.0, this is a the second uh, hard fork release that we're uh, doing as, as far as as far as the um, uh, as far as the ENF has done uh, for EOS. So the first one was uh, Leap 3.1. That was the one that kind of split us off from the old code base and uh, signaled to the to everyone that EOS is now. Um, Separate, uh, separated from the past, and the and the, the community is now driving development of the code. So, uh, if you remember, that was last year, September. Uh, 
late September that the feature was activated, the protocol features. Um, and so now, a year later, or a little more than a year later, we're planning uh, another hard fork release, and that's what will be included in Leap 5.0. Um, the main feature in Leap 5.0 is instant finality, which is, uh, I guess, what we're going to, Guillaume and I are going to talk about um, right now a little bit, go into that a little bit. There are other features as well, but that's the primary, the most exciting one really is instant finality. Uh, I will mention. One other thing that uh, is close to me, uh, as far as a secondary feature, though, in 5.0, I won't mention them all. Uh, one of them is uh, selectively leveraging ESVM OC. Uh, so we've long had ESVM OC, OC standing for Optimized Compiler, uh, uh, as a separate runtime beyond the baseline of ESVM JIT that is better optimizing the WASM contracts that are deployed on chain to make them run faster. And uh, that has been an option available for uh, nodes to run, uh, private networks to run, but we have recommended and still continue to recommend that uh, BPs and, and some other nodes on the public network do not run it uh, because there's some edge cases, some, some uh, issues that could be uh, a concern on a public network uh, where anyone could just deploy a contract. However, with 5.0, we are uh, introducing the ability to selectively leverage ESVMOC, which could then allow all nodes to use that uh, to speed up particular contracts, contracts that are managed by the BPs, the ones that are deployed on the accounts starting with EOSIO dot as a prefix. Uh, and so that's particularly exciting because the EOSEVM is deployed on, a, on the account EOSIO.EVM. And so... This was actually the primary purpose for why we've prioritized this for 5.0 is that we could leverage ESVM OC to speed up ES EVM, the ESEVM contract, and get uh, even greater performance from that. So I'm really excited about that. There are a few other smaller um, features as well that are already done, kind of included as part of that. But the most exciting feature is this um, instant finality feature, which is a consensus upgrade. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a really big upgrade. It's the first time in ES's history that we're changing the consensus algorithm. Uh, so yeah, I think with that, I'll uh, maybe hand off to back to Guillaume so you can talk about Insta Finality. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Um, uh, I guess uh, introduction to that new feature. I've heard a little bit through the grapevine, and I'm also very excited about the selective ES uh, VM uh, OC. That's that's something that's going to be really cool for. Uh, for a number of uh, <laughs> number of uh, purposes, so really really excited to see that coming uh, come to life as well. Um, coming back to instant finality, this is this is something we've been working on for quite a while now, and uh, we're really in the I guess like uh, in the thick of it now. Um, it's uh, we we discussed it a little bit on uh, I, I think a couple of weeks ago, but uh, there's there's just so much to uh, <laughs> so much to talk about about that feature. There's um, uh, we we call it instant finality. This is the name that uh, typically people have been using to refer to this upgrade. Uh, but in reality, what we're what we're really doing is we're um, introducing the hot stuff consensus mechanism to uh, to leap. And the hot stuff consensus mechanism is um, an algorithm that was developed back in the day in 2018 by VMware. Uh, I think I've mentioned that on the previous uh, fireside chat, but just as a, a refresher. And uh, it was selected by the Libra cryptocurrency project that was sponsored by Facebook in the uh, 
didn't didn't uh, see the ended up seeing the light of day. But that was that was at the at the their conclusion as they spent all that time to do uh, research on various consensus mechanisms, and they selected that one because uh, it had some some very very interesting properties, um, and it was really one of the I guess state of the art. Um, um, consensus models out there, and it, it still is today. That's still uh, uh, probably one of the best, if not the best, that currently uh, uh, exists. And um, when we started working on the instant finality proposal, uh, Arag and I were discussing various options, and uh, Arag actually uh, <laughs> was a very big proponent of um, of, uh, of hot stuff, and uh, convinced me essentially to um, to uh, basically like build instant finality on hot stuff at the time i was considering doing something that looked a little bit more like casper uh the ethereum 2.0 consensus model but after uh, after a few discussions with Eric, it became very clear that hot stuff was the the main contender and <laughs> probably a, a better most definitely a better choice so uh thank you Eric, for convincing me i was <laughs> i was uh, a little bit skeptical at first but didn't take too long <laughs> And uh, now I'm, I'm I'm very glad we're doing it that way. And there there's beyond instant finality, which is definitely a, a great feature to have to have um, block finality that um, occurs near instantly. Um, the hot stuff consensus algorithm has this uh, property called optimistic responsiveness, which allows you to uh, as a network to reach finality pretty much as fast as the network will allow it. So it's kind of a you have to do a few uh, back and forths between your um, finalizer nodes, the, the nodes that will uh, decide on the finality status of, um, of a block or a proposal. Uh, but it essentially allows you to reach that finality state um, as fast as network will allow. So this is quite, this is quite um, interesting because most of the other consensus models out there, they have a, um, uh, it, it basically takes a certain period of time that is usually like fixed or uh, that, that like a specific interval that is required to wait until all the nodes uh, agree on the finality status of a block. But here we're essentially able to do it as fast as we, uh, as we can, as a network will allow it. So that's why we we call it instant finality. It's really really um, uh, yeah as fast as as fast as the network will allow. And of course, in some scenarios, it will also be uh, probably even faster. Like if you're running this on a uh, private chain, or if you're running this on a, um, a testnet that has a very tight meshing between your nodes, you can you can theoretically reach uh, finality even before the next block is being produced. At least in theory. So this is quite this is quite uh, fascinating in terms of um, of uh, <laughs> I guess like a uh, a piece of technology. Like when you're able to reach uh, finality that fast, that's 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 really nice. Uh, but this is just one of the benefits of uh, of hot stuff. We've discussed a little bit. I think um, uh, two weeks ago we we discussed also what it allowed us to do in terms of governance uh, options, if you want, because now we have, uh, we're essentially creating or we're decomposing, if you want, the role Am I the only one? 
No. Now I'm having trouble hearing him as well. Yep, same here. I can I can tell you in Costa Rica we're having a little trouble with the internet. Yeah, I don't um, even think Yum can hear us at this point. <laughs> Maybe I'll mute him for a little bit, Areg, if you want. Yeah, to I can I can try to continue. I, I think what Yum uh, was just about to start talking about was the decoupling of different roles that are currently handled by a single entity, the block producer. So uh, in Hot Stuff, uh, there are uh, distinct responsibilities we can out, we can uh, describe. So one is uh, a block proposer. So the block proposer would be the entity that aggregates transactions that are coming into it, into, um, into a block in a certain order. And um, that's uh, a block that can be added to the block blockchain. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean it's final. It's just a proposal. The another role uh, is block finalizers. So block finalizers are the actual key holders that sign to confirm a block. And if there are sufficient signatures, kind of spread across phases, then uh, according to the consensus algorithm, a proposed block can be considered final, and it comes with proof. It comes with uh, you know aggregated signatures that act as a proof to any user that. According to the consensus algorithm, this block is final. And when the block is final, it means that all prior blocks in the chain up to that point and all the transactions within them are also final. They're irreversible is, a, is another I guess, synonym for that that uh, is more common in the antelope side of things. Um, and then a third responsibility is, specifically in hot stuff, is, is consensus leader. And the, the consensus leader um, is coordinating with the block finalizers to uh, generate that final uh, proof, which we call a quorum certificate, which is a, a, basically, you think of it as a signature, um, that convinces the rest of the world that this block is final. But to get to that point requires multiple iterations, multiple rounds of back and forth communication between the consensus leader and the block finalizer. Uh, particularly in hot stuff, it requires requires three phases of back and forth communication. So the consensus leader is the entity that aggregates all the block finalizers' uh, signatures. Uh, we're leveraging um, BLS signatures, which has this wonderful property that you can take as many signatures as you want and aggregate them together into one signature that uh, effectively captures the sign the signature of all the participants. In, in one cryptographic signature. Uh, so it does that process and then returns it back to the people to then build on top of that two more times before we get a uh, final quorum certificate that um, acts as proof of finality. Um, so that's those are the roles. And right now, you could with the current consensus algorithm, you can think of the block producer in EOS as playing um, as, as acting in all of those three roles. It certainly is the block proposer. Um, the signature that is added onto that block also acts as a block finalization signature, uh, the, according to the existing consensus algorithm. And the consensus leader isn't uh, really necessary in the current consensus algorithm as a role. It's it's more just um, 
the block. So the, this is actually the reason why uh, Hostef is so much faster than the our current algorithm. The current algorithm um, has the process of all the block finalizers signing for whichever phase spread across multiple blocks. So you're limited to one block or one or every half second as an opportunity for one block finalizer, block producer, in this case, providing their signature. And then that aggregates over time. Uh, and there's two phases of that before you have essentially accumulated enough signatures for a validating node to now know that this block, you know, at this point, 300 so blocks back in the history of the chain is now considered final, which is why you see this, this lag of 300 something blocks. And what's worse is that that scales with the number of uh, uh, block finalizers or, or block producers. So on EOS with 21 block producers, that means uh, if you do the math, it works out uh, to about a three minute gap between the head block and the last irreversible block. But with hot stuff, all of this stuff is happening as fast as network conditions allow. So all of the block finalizers are signing in parallel at the same time, and they're sending the messages to the consensus leader. And there's a few more rounds of that necessary, but they're happening as soon as the first, the prior round is done. You don't have to wait until a block is produced uh, with the the event-driven hot stuff um, that we're we're basing this new consensus algorithm on. And so um, that does require this other role of a consensus leader to manage that. But uh, uh, what it what it gives us is basically a very fast uh, time to finality, or very low time to finality. Um, so that, that's a, a difference, a key difference between the old and new algorithm, which explains why this one is much faster. Uh, but anyway, going back to the roles, so the block producer, uh, effectively a consensus leader isn't necessary, but uh, the block proposer and block finalizer roles were combined in a single role that we call the block producer. So with hot stuff, we have the opportunity to decouple those. It doesn't mean you have to decouple those. And just to be clear, with the 5.0 upgrade, um, we are continuing to bundle all of those roles together in in just the block producers that are selected uh, in the same way, according to DPoS, as they have uh, or always been. So um, this is a, a point that's maybe a little confusing to people, but the way I like to think of it is. The consensus algorithm, which is what we're really changing in 5.0, is this, um, you know, it's, the, it's this algorithm that determines finality given a set of consensus participants. It does not tell you how you should determine that set of consensus participants. It doesn't tell you how you should divide up the roles across different entities. It's just the, you know, the core computer science parts of things. Um, the consensus mechanism how I define it is this broader concept that builds on top of the consensus algorithm and adds all of the other stuff. Like how do you decide on a block proposer, a block finalizer? How do you decide uh, which ones to select? How, what are there, is there staking involved? Is there voting involved? Is there, there penalties? You know, the economics of all that get brought in. So um, we haven't really given a name. Some people called it uh, ABFT for the existing consensus algorithm. But the, there's an existing consensus algorithm in Antelope. And then on top of that, there's this consensus mechanism that uses it and, and selects the block uh, producers using what is a mechanism that is called DPoS, Delegated Proof of Stake. 
With 5.0, we are changing the consensus algorithm part of that to a new one that's based on hot stuff, but we're keeping the existing consensus mechanism of DPoS. So that continues just like it has. We still select, and on EOS, we're continuing to still select top 21 block producers. Those block producers would continue to now act as a block proposer and a block finalizer and also a consensus leader in the same way that uh, we, we, round, we kind of round robin through block proposers. Um, so none of that changes, but what it does give us is the opportunity by changing the foundation to explore if, if the community is interested other um, ways of breaking up those roles. Is, uh, let's see, Guillaume's not back yet, is he? Oh, I don't know if you can, is your audio good, Guillaume, now, or should I continue? Yeah, let's give it a try. Let's see here. Okay, yeah. Oh, server muted. Hello, hello. Yeah, I've been back for a while. I was uh, <laughs> I was server muted, but uh, thanks. That, that was great. That was a very, very um, good explanation, Eric. So I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. So um, there was uh, there, there's another thing though I wanted to um, to bring up, and um, which is quite interesting. Of course, as we uh, as we started working on um, instant finality, one of the reasons personally I got interested in the topic was uh, because of course I was working on IBC before that inter blockchain communication. And uh, this is now giving us quite a few uh, additional opportunities for IBC as well. The main one uh, being, of course, the ability to uh, shrink, to reduce the time to uh, finality and thus the time for IBC operations from about three minutes to uh, a few seconds. So that's already very, very interesting uh, on, uh, on its own. But it also, um, it also kind of unleashes a new... I guess a, a, a new paradigm, if you want, in how uh, light clients can interact with, um, with 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 the blockchain. Uh, one of the key uh, feature of of the instant finality upgrade is we're essentially creating a new API in the in Leap that allows nodes to uh, essentially like provide information about the finality status of the of the um, of the, the of the protocol at any given point. And this can then now be leveraged by these light clients um, that would want to know what the state of a transaction, for example, they're interested in uh, might be, but without having to necessarily care about all of the other blocks, all of the other content of all the other um, transactions and so on. So you can, you can think of a number of new, um, I guess like, ways to build applications that would not necessarily require you to run a full node. Um, you can you can stay in sync with the network and verify that certain transactions were included and that you can uh, base your activity on, uh, you can essentially take decisions based on these transactions without having to run necessarily the full uh, blown Leap software. And that's kind of how we're doing it with Instant, uh, with, with IBC. We're uh, essentially having the two, uh, two different blockchains act as light clients of each other. But now with this um, with this uh, system, we're able to do that in a way that's a lot more, um, uh, I guess, like a lot, a lot more convenient from the application standpoint. So this is something I'm really excited about as well. Uh, I can see I can see tons of applications from um, you know a simpler mechanism for exchanges to. Um, 
for example, list um, the YES tokens or other tokens built on YES or other Antelope chains. I can see also this being uh, very useful for any dApp developer, really, that has um, uh, the intention of building something that will require um, on-chain verification without necessarily wanting to run full nodes and uh, things of the sort. So this is quite this is quite um, uh, uh, an, an important milestone, I think, for, for Leap as well, to have the ability and the convenience to do things like this uh, without necessarily running the full uh, a full node. Um, so, so I don't know. I don't know. Like, uh, I don't know yet what we will see that's going to be built on top of that. But I can definitely see a lot of uh, opportunities from uh, a feature like this. Is there anything else that uh, that uh, uh, we wanted to discuss, uh, Arag, or should we maybe uh, answer a few questions? I don't know if uh, if uh, anyone has answer, any questions so far. So some questions. Um, I think. Primbot had a question. Oh no, your audio is cutting in and out again. Okay. Um, All right, Gab. Gab is using Starlink. So. Yeah, um, I would definitely want to hear what uh, Gam's opinion is on this question, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Uh, so this question is, uh, what is that? So why, why don't you think uh, many chains have adopted how stuff is so good? What are the downsides? Um, so I don't have like a, a great answer to this, but I'll give you my, my kind of opinion, my speculation. So one, one of the things I think is relevant here is just the chronology of all this. Like people adopt uh, consensus algorithms that seem pretty good at the time and then there's further development that happens um, and then there's sort of inertia that, that <laughs> limits people from upgrading something that seems to be working well enough. Um, newer chains may be, uh, have this opportunity to you know, choose the latest state of the art and adopt that. There are, there are chains out there that have faster finality, you know, low uh, time to finality, even if they're not using hot stuff, there's different various other approaches uh, that uh, may be okay. Um, one thing to keep in mind is there have been further attempts of improvements on top of hot stuff. We have evaluated some of those, but decided uh, we're not, they're, they're fairly new and there's a risk associated with that uh, because it's really important to have a system that is sound, that is that's safe, and you know has, uh, you know, the papers prove uh, safety and liveness. Uh, as you make tweaks to that, there's a risk that you're going to compromise that. So there's other uh, advantages. There's other you know uh, versions that built on top of hot stuff, changed it in some ways, claim to improve it, um, but. There's a question of does it compromise the safety or liveness properties that are desirable in hot stuff, and so we made a decision that some of these advantages weren't um, worth it for the risk of going for something kind of unproven. We wanted to stick with something that was well established, seems to be uh, pretty straightforward in terms of uh, having confidence in its uh, properties and its proofs, and that still works well enough. I mean, we're talking. Basically, uh, we're talking about very fast time, to, very fast uh, 
process, low time to finality, basically driven by network conditions, really than anything else. Um, one other thing I'll mention is like some networks can, we could bring like Casper, like there's this uh, legacy of using proof of work as the block proposal mechanism, if I can kind of bring it back to these roles, but then a gadget on top of that to create, to add finality. And they have their reasons for wanting to keep that. Uh, but given the latency kind of constraints that come with the block proposal mechanism, it doesn't necessarily make sense to take advantage of uh, things like optimistic responsiveness and some of the nice properties of hot stuff in that case. Now, why would they stick with that? Uh, I think there's an argument to be made. They make an argument, uh, whether I agree with it or not, uh, that uh, this opens up uh, like, like a, a, different, a different algorithm for block proposal like proof of work might open it up to anyone create more decentralization perhaps in the block proposal side, even if ultimately uh, finality is, uh, is uh, determined by some more closed off set of entities. Um, for us, looking at the history of EOS, um, we have been operating with, uh, uh, with this uh, system where we have a, a restricted uh, set of entities that are, are somewhat trusted. Uh, selected by delegation, selected by, by the stakeholders, the token holders. Um, and they've been acting as the block proposers and block finalizers. And so uh, there doesn't, that seems to be, uh, you know, somewhat accepted. So the block proposers being a, a set of, say, 21 or, or around there, could be more, but uh, roughly around their uh, number of entities that are trusted, seems to be working fine with EOS. And in that sense, there's no need to have a more, like, there's, we're not moving to a proof of work system, for example. And so we already have a very fast way of coming to, to uh, a block proposal. And uh, micro forks do happen, but they're very unlikely. So uh, with that, I think the advantages that Hostuff provides become far more realizable for EOS than, say, uh, some other chain like Ethereum. Uh, the other thing, though, to mention that is, is that that's the current case with EOS, but hot stuff, because of its linear signatures, the linear size, the, the, the BLS signatures, which allow for linearly aggregatable signatures, means that we can, um, with far um, less bandwidth, uh, um, issues, we can handle a much larger set of finalizers than we've been able to handle before. So this does open up the opportunity to increase the size of those, of those sets, particularly the block finalizer set is uh, um, something that could be uh, considerably increased without hurting performance. So this does open up opportunity to uh, add to that decentralization if that was desired. Um, I don't know. That's that's kind of my view of it. Uh, I don't know if Guillaume, if your audio is working, if you had anything else you could add in, in terms of uh, disadvantages of hot stuff or alternatives that how, how they compare. I don't know if my uh, mic is better. I, I switched uh, microphones, so like hopefully Sounds that one. 
<laughs> that one works better. Uh, and and yeah, like to add to what uh, Eric was saying, I think I think there's um, uh, it it's it's a fairly new algorithm to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, audio problems again. I guess you're you're doing this one solo, Arig. Well, uh, yeah, we'll see whatever uh, you know, may want to add by text. But I basically already um, said my part of that. So maybe we can move on to, is there, are there any other questions? I think that was the only question so far I saw in the chat. People um, are a bit distracted here with the class action information that was shared in the chat. But if you guys have questions, now's the time. Write it in the chat. Join us on stage. We'll give it a few moments, uh, and then uh, we'll let Areg get back to developing uh, Antelope. There we go. Trimbot coming in with a question here. Can we discuss, can we discuss the IBC potential with non-Antelope chains? Is that something that's going to be eventually possible? So, uh, yeah, one thing we can talk about with, with regards to that is um, we were evaluating. Okay, so hot stuff does require, uh, you know, for, for its performance needs, for its scaling needs, it does require a cryptographic scheme for the signatures that allow you to aggregate them together. This, I, I refer, referenced this before with the linearly aggregatable signatures. Um, a milestone that was recently uh, completed, by the way, uh, by Guillaume's team. So um, that's going to be in, uh, that's another protocol feature that's going to be in, uh, in Leap, uh, in Leap 5.0. Um, we're in the process of integrating that into the main branch right now. Um, we decided, though, there's, there's a few different options there, and we decided to go with BLS uh, 12, uh, 381 specifically, and there's a whole new library that um, was developed by um, the Origin team and uh, for this. So the reason we went with that, and in fact, also the reason we uh, uh, went with a design for the host functions that's very similar to, uh, to well, it's basically identical to an, uh, the interface in the EIP in Ethereum, is because uh, Ethereum 2.0 supports the same uh, cryptographic scheme. Uh, and so we intentionally chose that particular one because it enables, uh, let me back up a bit. So IBC requires on both ends of the chains that are communicating. So there's a source chain and a destination chain. On both chains, you need to have code, a contract, I guess, that will be able to validate the proofs of uh, the consensus algorithm of the other chain. So uh, the, one of the consensus uh, upgrades that are going to be in Leap 5.0 are exposing the host functions that are going to be used by an Antelope smart contract, also being developed by uh, Guillaume's team, to validate these uh, quorum certificates, which require doing uh, BLS signature validations. That's going to be needed for validating messages from uh, 
from other antelope chains that are going to be using the same instant finality mechanism. Um, but then the, the messages that are being sent by, say, EOS to another chain also uh, need to be validated by the quorum certificates that are generated by instant finality on EOS. And so now when we're talking about IBC with another blockchain like Ethereum, uh, we need to be able to validate those quorum certificates of EOS on an Ethereum smart contract. And that, and yes, while technically Turing complete, you could run anything in theory. The reality is, if you don't have the right precompiles, it's not, especially if you're trying to do cryptographic math, it's going to be too slow, too gas intensive, that it's just not economical. So we intentionally chose BLS. Uh, it satisfied our requirements, it made a lot of sense. But one of the other benefits of that is that it would allow us to use the same precompiles. Uh, that we're going to be using on, on EOS uh, on the Ethereum side so that the IBC contracts there could validate EOS's proofs. Uh, so yeah, we, we, there's no uh, milestone as part of the IF or IBC work uh, to build such contracts, but the technology, the, how we built the, both the IF um, and IBC uh, milestones enables us to now... Uh, more easily support IBC between Ethereum and EOS. Well, in the future, when IF is enabled anyway, it enables that. So I uh, think I answered that well. I don't know, Guillaume, if, if you can't talk, if there's anything else you'd want me to talk about, you could text me, or if your audio is working, maybe you can add, but I think that covers it. All right, maybe, maybe I can comment just a little bit. Um, so... Uh, you only basically talked about uh, Ethereum validating uh, EOS proofs, right? The other way around, uh, it might not be as easy. I mean, no, it's, well, of, it's of course doable, but it's like a lot of uh, a lot more uh, proofs to validate. Well, because the uh, so so it, with them using BLS uh, because we have the host functions anyway for validating proofs between antelope chains, we could leverage those same host functions to validate Ethereum's uh, proofs as well. Is Ethereum using uh, BLS as well uh, for their proofs, for their finality? Uh, I believe that's the uh, case, yeah, Ethereum 2.0. Okay, thank you. A couple more questions here came in the chat. Arig, I don't know if you want to address some of them. Um, so that was regarding uh, Ethereum. And really anything else that's actually using BLS 12, 381, uh, any other chain like that could, could uh, we would have the necessary foundations to quickly validate proofs on either side. That could expose, that could enable IBC between potentially other chains beyond that. Um, BTC is a completely different story. Uh, I, I know that Guillaume has talked about, has ideas about, how that could be done in a trustless way. Obviously, you know, if you're willing to give up 
if you're willing to trust and and have some sort of third party do things, then a lot of things become easier with regards to IBC. But the standard we're aiming for is trustless. The standard we're aiming for is to not add any more trust than the trust people already have for the consensus algorithm of the source chain. Um, so that that uh, limits what you could do uh, in terms of trustless uh, IBC between uh, EOS and Bitcoin, unfortunately. I know, I, I know Guillaume had some ideas there, but I have, I'm not really uh, aware if it's actually possible or not in a trustless manner. Uh, so that was kind of in reference to Trimbot's question of the uh, cross-chain decks of ETH, BTC, and USD. So the, you know, the tokens live on these different blockchains. ETH on Ethereum, that's fine if we have an Ethereum EOS IBC uh, connection uh, in a trustless way. But the... Uh, and then, of course, we already have USDT on, on EOS. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the limits of getting other tokens across in a trustless way de- de- depends on the IBC also being trustless, which is a question, which is something that uh, you have to take on a case-by-case basis for every uh, particular blockchain technology and the consensus algorithm it uses. Is there, was there another question I'm, I'm missing? I think... Is it so far? Oh, oh, here's one from Perry. The new host of rules. Um, so the question is about whether these uh, new roles create specialized hardware requirements for block producers. So the um, so once again, the rules, while the, the foundation allows them to be decoupled with 5.0, we're continuing to keep them all coupled as a block producer. So nothing changes there. Um, one of the things that's interesting but highly speculative at this point is if we were to decouple block production from block finalization, for example, um, then could if uh, block so block finalization itself is not a <laughs> intensive process, but you don't want to finalize blocks that are not valid because uh, part of finality as well is this attestation by the finalizers that this block is a valid blockchain, uh, is the head of a valid blockchain. So block validation is what's more resource intensive. Um, if there's a potential to maybe reduce the hardware intensity, intensity the, the hardware requirements for a block validator, for example, if we could find ways to parallelize it more, uh, this is all speculative implement, leap implementation um, matters. So if there, there's a way to parallelize validation more so you can use, say, lower clock cycle, but more core, uh, a machine that has more cores but lower clock cycles and still keep up with validation, and, and maybe those machines cost less, then that's an opportunity where a block finalizer could potentially run on cheaper hardware than what a block proposer uses. Uh, and and if, if so, that's, again, a great opportunity to expand the number of block finalizers without necessarily expanding the number of block composers. Because uh, remember, yes, we could throw more, uh, we can increase the numbers and claim we're more decentralized. Uh, the question if that's actually true or not, but it does come at a, a linearly increasing cost uh, increase because you have to compensate those nodes that are now being uh, expending resources to, to validate things in, a, in an available matter. So, uh, there's a trade-off there of how much decentralization is worth it. Uh, if we could find ways through this decoupling to be more efficient with the, the hardware costs, then the 
trade-off point or the optimal point could be shifted further towards a, a more decentralized number. But that's highly speculative, so I don't want to comment too much more beyond that at this point. Uh, I don't, so um, I don't know how much uh, longer you'd like me to continue uh, versus going, to other, going on to other topics. I think this was pretty good. Um, I think you covered most of the questions here that I saw. So thank you for that. And yeah, I think we can. I think we can wrap up the the segment here. Thanks a lot uh, for joining us, Arreg. Thank you, uh, Guillaume, as well, for joining us when your internet allowed you to do so. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll continue uh, to hear more about this upgrade that's coming on later in the year. All right, so let's keep going here. Um, maybe I'll touch real quickly about the class action lawsuit. There's some information shared in the chat. Um, remember that is uh, it's important to opt out if you don't want to participate in the current class action lawsuit against uh, block, block One. You can find some more information in the chat here on Discord. If you're listening in on YouTube or Twitter, you want to click these links, come check out, join us on Discord, discord.gg slash eos network, and then you can come in the voice chat and scroll back into this text chat to find all of the information here that was shared. Um, we'll see if this gentleman wants to join us later for a uh, fireside later on. Maybe we can get him uh, on the stage with us later. Um, okay, moving on to another. Uh, a bit of housekeeping. The monthly raffle ticket for July is about to close. Got nine minutes left to mint one. If you want to, you can grab some pop tokens on the market. They're going uh, not too expensive these days. You can join the raffle. We're giving 250 EOS in prizes every month. Some EOS moments as well and other NFT goodies can be found in there. For those of you who participated in the June raffle ticket, there was a bit of a, a lag on our ability to distribute these prizes uh, but we're working on improving our tools to make that easier in the future but the June prizes are being distributed as we speak so you can check your accounts later today you should find yourself uh, a June raffle pack that you can unpack when you want to and the list of prizes are contained in the NFT attributes so if you're wondering what you can find in your pack you can check out the list of prizes if you want to sell your pack on the market, let someone else open it up, potentially find the top prize of a 50 EOS airdrop in there. There's a bunch of 10 EOS airdrops as well. And so, yeah, good luck to everyone who, um, who got our June raffle packs. And you can expect more raffle packs like this every month for those of you who mint some raffle tickets. All right, let's get back to the agenda. Next up here, I'd like to invite... Another popular character in the EOS community, Nathan James, is with us today to talk to us about a new Twitter account that was recently released into the wild at Build on EOS on Twitter. Nathan James, welcome hello. to Fireside. Hello, 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 everybody. Um, so, actually, I want to, uh, before we talk about the Twitter account, uh, there's new translations on the documentation. Uh, and this is one of the, I wouldn't say final steps, but the 
uh, last steps that we really wanted to take on the documentation to make sure that they were ready for people to come into the ecosystem and learn uh, as easily as possible. This also includes, I don't know if uh, many of you have noticed, but there's a whole new journey for developers there, uh, which tries to throw them as quickly as possible into learning smart contracts instead of having to learn a bunch of other stuff first. Um, and now we're starting to focus on expansion mechanisms. Uh, so things like more Twitter spaces, uh, more in, uh, challenge challenges, the Twitter account itself, uh, ways to bring developers into the ecosystem and less ways to create educational content uh, for EOS because we think that it's at a place where it's uh, as good as we need it to be. Um, this also includes, I don't know if you're going to get into this uh, later in, in the call, um, in the fireside, but WarfKit just released their documentation today, which is yet another checkbox there of things that we've been waiting for. Um, so onto the Twitter account. We have a new build on EOS Twitter account. Uh, if you go and take a look at it, you're probably going to laugh your head off. It's uh, quite excellent. It's being, um, I, I'm helping to run it, but it's not necessarily run by me. It's run by somebody else in the organization who's doing a fantastic and fabulous job and making it uh, something developers actually want to go to instead of something that's just like, oh, here's another account talking about really boring tech stuff. Um, it is definitely a place for developers to congregate. It's a place for us to chat with other developers inside of other Web3 ecosystems as well as Web2 ecosystems. But it is meant to be a place that uh, is a little bit more on the fun side. Um, to top this off, I guess the last thing that I really wanted to give a thumbs up to is that we're working on a challenges initiative. This is going to be a place where you can come and you can uh, either earn some respect uh, and I'm, I don't mean that in, as a token. I know that we, there's respect to initiatives, but I mean literal respect uh, and earn some uh, face time in front of people who might need builders in the community, as well as uh, some EOS in the future, uh, just by doing things that the network needs from a technical perspective. So this might be uh, building example applications. This might be creating uh, developer content. This might be going out to um, uh, Twitter spaces or to rating other uh, firesides like these on other Web3 ecosystems. Um, actually turning this into a leaderboard where people can compete against one each other uh, to actually try to do their best to bring developers into our ecosystem. All right, awesome. Thanks, uh, Nathan, for that update. We are going to be talking about WorfKit a bit later on in the show with Aaron. Um, sorry to I, jump the gun then. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, that's fine. We can, we can talk about it now. Actually, it is related. Aaron, are you, uh, are you ready to jump on the mic real quick? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Well, uh, today we pushed out the new wharfkit.com website, which, uh, has some, marketing materials basically explaining kind of what this project is as well as documentation guides and a blog post that outlines uh today's announcement and then alongside of that we released uh version 1.0 of the session kit which is one of the major components of wharf um it is basically the replacement for most of the other tools that we've all been using to build applications, web applications specifically, uh, for the past, I don't know how many years since the network launched. 
Um, that's the session kit kind of, uh, is the next generation of all the tooling we've had previously. Um, there are other components that are coming as part of the, this project. Um, the blog post dives into that briefly as well as to what's next. Uh, the, one of the big ones, this is a tool we've never had before is the contract kit. Um, and it is a tool for working with smart contracts in web applications. Uh, it will simplify a lot of what developers have to go through uh, and really optimize how these applications can interact with smart contracts in the network and hopefully reduce some load on uh, the API operators out there. Um, this has been, there's also a piece on this in the blog post as well that was shared in chat. Um, this has been a long journey, and there is kind of a, a summary of kind of how we got to where we are today in this blog post, uh, going all the way back to the blue papers uh, back in late 2021 when that was started. Um, this whole project came out of the Wallet Plus blue paper. Like this was the first proposal in that blue paper, if you remember looking at it. Uh, it had a, sorry, it had a generic name. Uh, it was just called Software Development Kits, and it was identifying the need for something like this to exist to really accelerate uh, the Web3 development aspects of EOS and Antelope blockchains. You know, that was, that was all written before Antelope was a thing, I think, um, or right around the same time when that all started. I, it's, this last couple of years has felt like decades. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is kind of where we're at today. It's been a really long road getting here. And today's a pretty big milestone in releasing that 1.0 version of the session kit um, and inviting developers to actually like use it, like build your applications with this now, like drop EOSJS, drop UAL, drop these old tools and get involved on this side. Um, I'm obviously fairly biased because I've been, you know, working on this for I don't know how long now. Uh, but I really do think this is a significant step forward in the developer's experience, which is going to directly translate into the user's experience. Um, and this is just the beginning. Like, there's so much more we can add to this framework to make things even better. Um, if you've listened to the WarfKit calls, and we briefly touched on this a little bit, but one of the things we really want to do, it's not in the roadmap, but we're, our team wants to do it, so we're probably going to do it anyways, uh, is this idea of automatic signing and request for permission. Worf's going to let us finally do that because we'll be able to do this kind of advanced signing process where you're playing a game and you're logged in, it's not going to pop up with Anchor or whatever application to ask you to sign these transactions you've authorized. It's going to let you do things in that application in a more immersive way and uh, just you know keep you playing or doing whatever it is you're doing. Maybe it's a social app or something. Um, this, is, this is a big key to making these apps uh, familiar to Web 2.0 users and moving all of this forward. So, I think in that, that situation, who's it. paying for the resources? For if which? I approve, if I approve, you know, transactions for the game, and then is that now kind of on the Worf Kit side that's paying for the resources? 
It would still be your account unless, like, independently, it can be either. Like, Worf, the session kit in general will allow resource providers to kick in, cover resources like fuel. That was kind of one of the pitches in the blue paper was like, we have this cool technology in Anchor where we just co-sign transactions and we can do fees if you get excessive with your usage. Um, That is now not an Anchor-specific feature. It is now a Wharf feature. So any app using any wallet gets that feature now. The way that this request for permission I was talking about works is separate to that. Um, Depending on the way the application is built and what they have enabled, it's either going to be your account still paying for resources, just like it would if Anchor was signing or whatever, or it could be co-signed and the application could cover those resources. Very cool. Sounds uh, sounds very flexible for developers. It, that is why we started down this rabbit hole. I mean, you could go back to late 2019 uh, when we were building Anchor and trying to use EOSJS and it was not flexible enough for us. So we built EOSIO Core, which then turned into WarfKit Antelope and is now the foundation of this entire project. It's because we needed that flexibility. And we want to make sure that that flexibility is there for everyone else. All right, awesome. Any questions uh, from the crowd at this point for Aaron? I've got a question. Sure. This is Perry. Uh, Hi, Aaron. Hello. Uh, Are there any features uh, in the new kit that would accommodate privacy, encrypted secrets, something that might be used to build something close to a password or secret manager? No, there are not currently. Um, I mean, it can interact with any external SDK that might do that and any smart contract that might process that information. Um, But that kind of that secret style thing is kind of not in the scope of the application itself or in the SDKs itself. Are you aware of anybody that's, that's, uh, that's addressing that in the ecosystem? I mean, I know there's a couple privacy-centric tokens that are being developed and those would be able to use these SDKs for their web interfaces. Um, But as far as like user centric secrets, like a password manager or something um, or encryption schemes or private messaging or anything like that, uh, I don't know them off the top of my head. I (laughs) honestly, I'm kind of behind on ecosystem news simply because my focus has been this. It's been on wharf for, since the beginning of the year, really. Why, why do you think that's not been a priority? Because it seems like that would be pretty high priority. Uh, but maybe I'm biased about that. I guess I'm not even entirely sure what the use case would be. I mean, if, if there, somebody were to build an application that focused on whatever this feature is you're kind of alluding to um it could be done i I don't know i guess i don't know enough to speak to this 
I could very I could very quickly describe it because well I've thought about it quite a bit but it's it's also it's also come up it's kind of front and center in uh, in our in our internal Eden on EOS discussions because we're all trying trying to figure out how do we maintain control decentralized control of all of our assets of our of our Twitter accounts of our GitHub accounts and all of these things that pass. Uh, between terms of elected officials, so you know, in an ideal world, we'd have we'd have a blockchain-based tool that we could use, that we could trust, that would allow us to move control of those from uh, from uh, elected term officials to elected term officials. Uh, that's one that's one uh, application. But the obvious one is, you know, let's get a password manager on the blockchain. Or let's have a bank account that's actually private. Or you know, I mean, it just it just goes on from there. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I can see the benefit in that, and I could see applications being built that leverage the public keys available to accounts, and then perform that encryption. Um, it could be stored on the blockchain. It could be stored on IPFS, like the actual encrypted data could be it could kind of go in any medium once it's encrypted using the private keys or not the private keys but the public keys of the accounts that have should that should have access to it um i mean i guess i don't see a reason why that couldn't be built but it i think Worf's relation to all of this would be that it could facilitate any sort of transaction signing that's involved in this process. But most of that work would actually be happening off-chain, outside of a smart contract, specifically. Is there a policy against developing such a thing that you're aware of? No. I mean, anybody's free to build whatever they want with these systems. Within your group? Within my team? Yeah. No, we just have higher priorities, like making the tools that allow people to build things like that. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, thanks, Perry, for that question. Thanks, Aaron, for uh, updating us, and congratulations on the Worf Kit milestone you guys reached today thanks if there's any other questions uh feel free to reach out all right thanks aaron okay next next up i'd like to invite laura the, market, the marketing manager at the nf to talk to us a bit about this month's upcoming crypto conference in toronto Hey Laura, welcome to the far okay? side. Yeah, a bit low, but yeah, coming in clear. Perfect. Uh, I'll see if this helps, hopefully. Um, so I think this is my first time here on Fireside. I'm Laura. I go by LMC. And I'm, yeah, the new marketing manager here at ENF. I work with Zach, Brandon, and Liam as a part of the marketing and comms team. Uh, so the ENF uh, and by ENF, it's going to be me, Liam, and a couple other people are going to be at the Blockchain Futures Conference in Toronto. 
um, on August 15th to 16th. It's actually the biggest blockchain web three game by all of the above conference in Canada. And the ENF is actually a sponsor of the ETH Women Hackathon. Um, so yeah, Leanne and myself and the team's going to be there getting up to some shenanigans. We have some super fun things planned for socials. And I know that some of the team from Antelope will be there as well. Um, I'm also going to be speaking on a panel in Women in Web3, along with some other amazing women from XVC Tech, like Google Women Tech Makers, and the founder of uh, Women in Blockchain Canada on August 16th, which should be really cool. So stay tuned to our socials. And if you can make it to Futurist, hope to see you guys there. Awesome. Yeah, a couple of us uh, from the EOS Nation and Pinax team are going to be there as well in Toronto. So definitely let us know if you're out there. Definitely uh, come say hi if you see us out there. All right, next up, we've got the Pomelo Season 6 Analysis Report. This has been published just a couple days ago. And uh, I'm going to give a quick overview here of the report. I'm sure um, that you guys are interested in learning about what we discovered during the analysis period. To cut to the chase, the claims are going to be opening next week. So if you've got a grant in, uh, the deadline to submit an appeal for this analysis is August 8th. So that's uh, Tuesday, August 8th. And then... Claims are going to open up uh, in the, the days following that deadline. So everyone should be able to claim their EOS next week if you've had a successful grant in Pomelo Season 6. Uh, I shared the link of the article in the chat. I'm going to go over some of the highlights here in the article that I found interesting when reading uh, this over a couple days ago. So the analysis and re resulting adjustment caused $16,700 to be returned to the matching pool to be distributed. So this is actually about twice as much as season five. So we saw an increase there in the amount of adjustment, but still much lower than previous seasons like season six, uh, season three or season four. There were two grants that were disqualified during the application submission, Captain Black Bill and Wiz Network. Are grants that were disqualified. At first glance, these grants appeared to be known projects with established reputations, but were found out to be fraudulent. For example, the true owner of the project outlined in Captain Blackbill was able to confirm to us that he was not the one that created the grant. So those two grants were disqualified. And then there were also a couple of grants that had reduced matching allocations due to cyber pattern detection. The grant Bit Beasts had a minus 99% reduction. Basically, looks like all of these donations were cyber attacks, so it was reduced from $8,800 down to $100. And the EOS Ecosystem Dashboard grant had a reduction in of 35%. And uh, so there were some patterns of cyber attack that were detected and those donations have been collapsed and do not count towards the matching prize allocation. Um, just a quick reminder, there is a 20% fee to each donation that is taken from donations of a Pomelo season and applied to the matching pool of the next season. So these donations that get collapsed 
for cyber uh, detection, 20% of those donations are actually given to projects for the future season. So that's one of the mechanisms uh, that Pomelo uses to disincentivize cyber attacks. Couple grants had reduced ma matching allocation due to self donation. So Telos Astral Quest had minus 58%, and EOS India had minus 3%. And there's a bit more information in the article if you want to read up on it. Like I said, the appeal period is currently ongoing. If you want to appeal a decision, you can send your appeal to support at pomelo.io by August 8th. And then in the following days, claims will be enabled and you will receive an email with instructions on how to complete your know your client screening KYC if you haven't done that already if you have done it already then you won't have to do that and then you can just go simply collect your matching funds um, and then final thing I want to highlight here the top three grants of season six per pool so for the EOS EVM pool with 23 approved grants we had EOS EVM name service coming in as the top recipients of the matching allocation with $13,000. Noah Swap, second place with $12,000. And MetaHub, third place with also just under $12,000. As for EOS GameFi, we had 13 approved grants in that pool. Pink Cat Eating Papaya, New Chat, and NFT Game Stats all reached the maximum allocated uh, amount, which is... I believe $13,000 here that they each received. Um, for the Everything EOS pool, with 63 approved grants, top three were the social recovery for the Recover Plus portal, DAOBox, an open source governance tool, and EOS ecosystem dashboard. Each of these grants getting uh, between $3,000 and $2,000. And then for Telos, with 19 approved grants, Open Block Explorer, Antelope Tools, Network Monitoring Dashboard, and the Fortis Name Service API each earn um, $4,800 and $4,000 in matching allocation. So congratulations to all of the successful grants this season. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you return for Season 7. Last little nugget of information I want to share here is that, you know, having a dedicated pool for GameFi. Okay, hold on. Yana, I'm going to server mute you. You can unserver mute you later on if you want. So having a dedicated pool for GameFi was able to really push up the amount of pro GameFi projects that applied to Pomelo. In Season 5, it was less than 1% of projects were GameFi, whereas in this season, it was... 29%. So a huge increase, which really showcases one of the main benefits of the pools in Pomelo, which is to really target specific types of applications to join uh, the season. And then there's other stats in there in terms of distribution, geographical locations, the types of grants, all that stuff. So I encourage you to read more on that if you participated in Pomelo season six. All right, GTA here in the chat, letting me know that the unpacking is working. There's a slight error there early on, but looks like it's been fixed. That's great. Good luck with your unpacking. Let us know if you find the top prize of 50 EOS in your pack. 
All right, let's keep it going here. Um, got a couple topics left. <laughs> there you go, Yana, unserve mute yourself, that's right. So EOS EVM Roundup, let's talk a bit about that like we do every week. We've got Gate.io integrating the EOS EVM directly into their exchange. So this is the biggest exchange that I've heard of that has directly integrated EOS EVM. So that's obviously good news to see. Um, I know Zach is working a fair amount uh, on these types of initiatives. Zach, did you want to add something about this Gate.io integration? Yeah, so uh, Gate.io is the first uh, centralized exchange to natively uh, support the EOS EVM. So it's, it's like the highest level of support um, that we could achieve with an exchange. Um, hopefully, uh, more exchanges will be onboarded over the coming months, but Gate.io is first. Um, what I mean by native support is um, similar to when you um, deposit or withdraw USDT, let's say, um, to an exchange. And whenever you go to your wallet to get your um, deposit or withdraw address, you have the drop-down menu where it asks you, okay, which chain do you want to deposit or withdraw um, your tether from? Uh, it, it's like that, but for the EOS token. So whenever you're on Gate.io and you go to uh, withdraw your EOS tokens, you have the option in a drop-down menu to select EOS EVM. And then from there, it is um, just a very standard look for any other Ethereum-based chain, uh, which is a single text field asking for um, your Ethereum public key. Um, that's uh, the best way to do it. Uh, it's also the most frictionless because even though we do have the ability to withdraw from all centralized exchanges to uh, the EOCVM, there still is um, external knowledge that's required to know, like for example, that there's an EOS account name called EOSIO.EVM that you need to put into the account field. And then in the memo field, uh, pick, copy and paste your public key. So um, that's the big difference here, is that it doesn't um, require any um, knowledge of those um, privileged accounts. And like I said, uh, hopefully more exchanges will be supporting that soon. Uh, but Gate.io is first. Super excited to see it. All right. Thanks, Zach. And looking forward for more integrations from exchanges with the EOS EVM. I guess one more thing is that there's just um, – so right now, you could withdraw from any exchange um, using the ESIO EVM account, um, but there, there's still certain um, centralized exchanges that are blocked um, from the front end of the bridge. And the reason we, – we've talked about it multiple times, um, but that's um, uh, a feature called inline actions. And I just wanted to give the update that we're continuously uh, having conversations with exchanges. It does require um, infrastructure changes, uh, which adds engineering costs um, to uh, the centralized exchanges. So that's kind of the reason it's um, been going a little bit slower than we would have liked. Um, but that work's continuing also, and we'll be making um, announcements as each uh, centralized exchange supports the inline actions, which will um, allow deposits into the exchange uh, directly from EOCVM.
All right, good stuff. Another EOS, uh, actually, not necessarily EOS EVM news for now, might become in just a bit. Here we've got a tweet from Pith Network saying that they're excited to release the EOS USD price feed. So from what I understand, this uh, is a network that is an Oracle, distributes price feeds to a bunch of different blockchains, and now they've added the EOS USD price feed to 25 plus blockchains. So I don't think the Pith Network is on the EOS EVM yet with their Oracle, but I'm speculating that maybe they'll be enabling it on the EOS EVM uh, in the near future. So you hopefully, might be on to something there, Steph. You might be on to something there. There you go. Um, and, and Pith, they're, they're actually the second uh, most widely used uh, Oracle service. So everyone really? kind of knows about Chainlink, um, but the, the next uh, most used one um, is Pith. So I just dropped a link to DeFi Llama on um, uh, the text chat, and you can see there. there there's two Oracles in between, uh, but if you look at them, they only support like one protocol each or two protocols each. So as far as um, oracles that support multiple blockchains, it's um, Chainlink and then Pith. Very cool. I didn't even know there was an oracles section on DeFi Llama. Cool stuff. What is uh, TVS? What does that mean? Do you know? Uh, total value secured, uh, but I am not sure of what the definition of it is. Unless it's like maybe some proof of reserves thing, I'm I'm not really sure. It's an Oracle service, so it's not like the same that's as TVL. I, that's yeah. what I mean, right? Interesting. Yep. If any, if anyone knows, let us know. If not, uh, maybe we'll update you next week when we find out. But cool. Thank you very much, Jack, for that extra context. All right, and then rounding up our EOS EVM news today, there's a new blog post on the ENF blog about Orlando being powered by EOS, the, the uh, blog series called hashtag powered by EOS, how Orlando leverages EOS to unleash gaming creativity. So I read this article this morning. Again, I'm going to highlight a few of the more interesting uh, parts of this article. And so, in the biggest sense of the word, uh, Orlando seeks to reward players for exploring the infinite possibilities of social sandbox gaming. So what does that mean? Well, Orlando takes pride in its user-centric design, where creators can wield their imagination and contribute to levels, characters, or new game modes. So it's really a way to enable anyone in the Web3 space to build these games on chain. So creators earn compensation whenever a player purchases or uses their work and the platform hosts regular contests to reward exceptional creators. Mm -hmm. So Orlando recently won third place in the Web3 innovation competition organized by B Water. The accolade has captured industry experts' attention and validation. This amplified visibility attracts potential collaborators and underscores Orlando's potential for future growth and success. 
So EOS is central to Orlando's revolutionary approach to gaming. The EOS network and the EOS EVM play crucial roles in validating, protecting, and promoting the ingenuity of Orlando users. So by embracing EOS, Orlando has expedited its mission of providing a community of global gamers with seamless and user-friendly on-chain gaming experience. Orlando's integration with the highly performant EOS network enhances its capability to protect user creativity without sacrificing performance or UI responsiveness. So through this interoperability between EOS Native and EOS EVM, Orlando allows people to build game scenarios on-chain, allowing users to harness seamless on-chain services. So as a recap, Orlando is the next generation social game builder and gaming platform that incentivizes that incentivizes user-generated content, UGC. It harnesses the power of the EOS blockchain to protect and monetize gamers' creativity. And with thousands of ex existing users, the platform's growth shows no sign of slowing down. Get involved, create your games, and shape the future of gaming with Orlando. So check out the article if you want to learn more. And uh, yeah, check out the platform if you're interested in creating user-generated content for games secured on EOS. All right, and then finally here, last topic of the day, just wanted to share. Um, it is Chinese content, but um, it's been getting a good amount of engagement. Basically, this is a review of the Q2 quarterly report. I'm just going to share a picture here to show how much fun uh, the Asian community has here uh, in these videos. You can see the host has this virtual headset and glasses and bunny ears. And to be honest, I was quite jealous when I saw her setup. I feel like I need something like that for when I host the hot sauce. Anyways, just wanted to throw that out there. I thought it was pretty cool. So that's it for our list of scheduled topics. Uh, at this point, of course, open mic. If any of you have any other updates you want to share, maybe you want to tell a joke, maybe you want to talk about the crazy DeFi action that's been going on the last couple of days with Curve. Uh, anything and everything's on the table at this point. Yeah, so join me on stage if you want. Does anyone have any updates from the Curve founders' uh, loans across all these DeFi protocols? I was uh, I was following that story a bit over the last few days. Haven't seen any updates today. Basically, if you haven't heard, the Curve founder put up half of all existing Curve tokens, which he controlled, onto these DeFi platforms. Took out big loans, bought a mansion or two. And then there was a hack on the Curve platform that allowed a hacker to steal a good amount of Curve and which, if that Curve was to be sold in the market, could trigger a cascade of liquidation on all of these large stacks of Curve tokens that are currently spread out across a bunch of DeFi protocols. And so it was kind of a, a hairy moment for the DeFi space over the last few days. Yesterday, from yesterday's updates that I saw, seems like the Curve founder sold uh, a decent amount of CRV tokens, OTC deals, to a bunch of big players in the space, 
allowing him to get some much needed stable coins to reduce his loan to value ratio across these these protocols. Um, Trimbot was out there on the side of cheering for the liquidation hunting. He says it would have been healthy for DeFi. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe it would have destroyed all of DeFi. No, probably not. I think I think the system would have survived. However, it would have been some massive swings. You're talking as if this is over. I don't know. I haven't had updates today. And the last updates I I got from yesterday was like he was paying back some of his loans and reducing his risk ratio. Fraxland interest rate stopped going crazy. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's not over. It's there's a lot of money to be made by short sellers. I wouldn't put it past anyone to try to liquidate them. Um, it just kind of shows one of the um, big big risks with DeFi. Whenever you have um, single entities or single individuals with uh, large token supplies, um, as the founder of the project, I think he held something like thirty forty percent of the token supply and had it all as collateral on Av. Um, so the biggest risk here is that if his position were to get liquidated on Av, they have like an insurance fund to kind of cover um, some of the bad debt that the the, loan, the lending protocol would pick up. He also has um, a large position on another protocol. I can't remember. That's FraxLend. If yeah. he gets liquidated on FraxLend, it's a big issue because it socializes the bad debt. Because not only would Curve's liquidity get eaten up, it, it can't absorb a, um, as large of a position as he holds. So the price would cascade downwards. And then all of these now very low value uh, Curve tokens, basically the entire founder's stash would get distributed amongst all of the lenders on Curve. Or not on Curve, on, on um, Brax Lend and to a lesser extent Ave. So... What that means is um, he borrowed uh, USDT and other stable coins against his curve, which like seems like a good thing. People do it all the time. You think about um, paper billionaires like uh, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel. Like that's exactly what they do. They hold large stock positions against their companies, and then they borrow against it to buy other things and increase their wealth. Um, the most probably notable example that people in this call are aware of is when Elon Musk took out a multi-billion dollar loan against his own Tesla stock uh, to buy Twitter, essentially. And now he's rebranding it to X. So it's a very common thing that people do um, because it's um, looked upon as like it's not selling. He was leveraging his tokens in DeFi. But the risk is that it's such a large percentage of the supply that there's no possible way a market could absorb uh, that much sell pressure at once. So um, there's other DeFi protocols that have been rushing um, to kind of uh, fix, or not fix, but put um, preventative measures into their lending system. So for example, having a cap on how many tokens uh, could be collateralized on a single lending protocol, that's one example. So Aave, for example, did not have that, but a rule could be put in place, for example, that says, okay, our lending protocol will not allow more than, let's say, 10% of the total token supply to be collateralized. Um, or maybe it has, uh, a- after 10%, you get less and less uh, loan-to-value loan to uh, ratios, for example. But 
it's not over. Um, I'm watching. I think his liquidation price the other day they were saying was uh, 35 cents. I don't know how that's changed um, with uh, the OTC deals going on. And I also saw that um, there, there's a lot of people. So there's a lot of uh, liquidation hunters. But on the other side of the coin, there's also a lot of very wealthy people who are heavily invested in the DeFi and seeing it succeed and survive. So I saw some uh, tweets earlier um, talking about how the bids on like Binance and some of the larger exchanges, there's huge like bid walls on the buy sides of the order books to absorb uh, any selling pressure to make sure that the token price doesn't go below a certain value because of the cascading risk to all of DeFi if that uh, position were to get liquidated. Yeah, I'm not personally exposed, I don't think, uh, to any of this. I don't have any money on those uh, those lending protocols. I don't hold any curve or anything like that. Um, so it is kind of interesting to see. And it is one of the things that is very exciting about blockchain is that all of these positions, everything is public, right? And transparent and, and open for anyone to check, which makes this liqu these liquidation hunters you know, it being able to kind of go out there, see the liquidation levels, trying to get the price to go to those levels to buy the cheap tokens. And then, like you say, you've got other whales on the other side, putting up buy walls to prevent it. All very exciting for sure. Um, four and a half hours ago, I've got a bot here on Telegram, Binance Futures liquidation that I use to kind of just keep an eye on the overall price movements. There was an, a short liquidation of a CRV position earlier today at at, at uh, 60 cents a crv so it's definitely not over still some action all the all the other tokens seems like we're going down in price and then you see a lot a short liquidation on crv um always interesting to see of assets i mean you hold any number of other DeFi tokens what's more like it depends on who you are but if you're an asset manager or a vc holding like hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars of um, liquidity across many DeFi protocols, it's in your best interest to swap some of whatever else you're holding, any coin really, uh, for Curve to, pr to protect the price. I think that's going on in a kind of like a decentralized manner. The other thing that was interesting this highlighted was actually in regards to Oracle. So we talked about Pith earlier in the show. Um, I think the price of Curve on chain went down below the founders liquidation prices but on centralized exchange it did go down as much and then i don't know i saw a couple of tweets i think this is Chainlink, and some people were saying like there's a couple of accounts that really can override these price oracles and apparently there was maybe some adjustments made to that crv price to not take into consideration the, the the low price on chain that happened for probably a short amount of time uh to prevent this liquidation cascade to, to start so i don't know if, i don't know if you heard anything more about that zach but uh, that was another interesting aspect of this whole situation but that's that's uh lending uh different DeFi protocols have gotten into big trouble by doing things like that by like hard pegging an asset for example um, there have been DeFi protocols that have been exposed by like hard pegging to U.S. Tether for or um, to a specific stablecoin like UST for example. Uh, and if you just peg it to a dollar rather than relying on an Oracle to like get you the real time price data from like an aggregation of centralized and decentralized exchanges, when you just hard peg an asset to um, some other price, um, 
it's been exploited many times in the past. So I don't know the specific example you're talking about, though. But um, yeah, I didn't. I don't. <laughs> it's not good if they're um overriding price prices, unless they're just overriding like low liquidity dexes or something like that. Um, there's more liquidity on centralized exchanges mm -hmm. than in any dex, even more than Uniswap. Yeah. So it probably is safer to kind of use the price feeds from where the market makers are. The other big news this week, Richard Hart and Hex getting sued by the SEC probably comes as a surprise to no one. But um, interesting to see how that'll play out. Stefan, I've, I've got a question that I'd like to ask a, a, a third party. I'd like to ask Trimbot, Trimmy, question. Shintai uh, has just just today, uh, the CTO Philip has announced a new uh, new program. I guess you'd call it. And I haven't caught up on all of the uh, all of the messages. I'm wondering if Trim, uh, Trimmy could give us a an overview of what he of the program that he as he sees it, and uh, yeah, just just share what he thinks about what uh, what Philip has done. Tr Trimmy, is that a is that a standard nickname for Trimbot? I think so. Yeah, among <laughs> me and my friends, it is. Yeah. All right, Trimmy. So yeah, that's I I read a message actually from. Shintai, just I was doing the show prep for today. I didn't include it in the agenda because I didn't really have time to dig into it. But it seems like they've built uh, an AMM that they want to deploy on EOS. And they've got some plans to uh, reward liquidity providers. So it did seem interesting. And they mentioned something about a release sometime in August. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully, um, yeah, we learn more about that in the coming weeks. And hopefully they come on the fireside to talk to us more about this project. Okay. But yeah, I don't have anything other than a, a screenshotted message. I could not even verify the source. I imagine it was from the Chintai Telegram channel. I'm not sure. Yeah, from the uh, from the unofficial. Unofficial Chintai channel. There you go. If you've got those links, uh, Perry, maybe you want to share them in the chat. If people are okay. curious, they can go check it out themselves that. until we get official confirmation from the team. Steph, I, I had a topic I wanted to hear. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, hey, Jan. Welcome hey. back uh, to the Fireside. It's been a little bit since I've seen you in here. Yeah, I know it's been a while. Um, just uh, yeah, been working. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I've been. I wanted to just post an update about um, one of my grant proposals um, about three D NFTs. Um, so basically, I mean, this I've, is on Pomelo, um, right? This was a Pomelo grant. Yes, that's right. Correctly? Yeah. So a lot of the work, like we started, was. Um, I mean, it's an open source concept, and and so part of the the article that I've written was. Um, like a modeling workflow. Um, and, and so I've, like my, my background is in architecture and energy modeling, but um, the approach that, that I wanted to 
take was really to, to share this kind of concept of, of creating 3D objects, 3D NFT objects. Um, and so even for me, like I took an approach where it's uh, developing a non-manifold geometry. Um, and so it's, it's a different um, approach of, of creating these, these um, structures, these 3D structures. But, um, but part of this, it's all open source. It's all, um, you can make scripts. And then so part of this workflow that we did was, um, you know, we built this, this mesh. It's a really simple mesh. Um, just to test the features for for 3D NFTs for GLB files and such, um, and 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 part of this kind of journey that that we took, uh, or that I took was, um, is, is that you know we apply these scripts, so we have styles and 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 space parameters, and so we can start to really, um, you know, eventually create these geometry nodes and these large data sets of um, versions of these models, and um, so so anyways, I thought I mean it was, there's a lot of um, you know techniques that we um, that I cover in this article. Um, but, um, yeah, I just want to really share some of, I guess, where we've kind of arrived and I, and I guess maybe like where we're at and I think probably where really our industry and architecture is going and, and really where it's intersecting with the open source technology and then where EOS or NFTs in general are really going. Um, and so, yeah, and I think I just wanted to leave it, you know, just introduce this topic if people had questions or want to talk about it. Um, but yeah, where I see things going next, it's you know I've heard of like recursive ordinals. So like referencing, basically we can have three D files that have a ton and ton of data, meshes, and, and uh, all kinds of properties, and we can create many versions of these three D files, and and even link the versions to each other, and actually kind of phase in like say say for a building. Your volume's really low. Maybe speak oh. closer to the mic. <laughs> Okay. Well, anyways. Um, oh, there we go. That's better. How is that? Okay. Um, yeah. So, anyways. So now, like the, I guess the state of where we're at, kind of in our industry with open BIM technologies, that you know we can start to do get commit pushes to these, you know, open data files, these IFC files that, um, you know, I, I saw, talk about an IFC file, but it, it all doubles in a three D world as a GLB file or any sort of analysis, as long as you can get the semantics right, and that's why I, you know we. I created this non-manifold geometry. It's more scriptable. And um, anyways, it's just a, a concept that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people can just share. And I think there's a lot of blender artists out there. Um, and so I think that's really one, like, of the playing field where everyone kind of comes together. And, um, and uh, yeah, I'm creating and GLB files is not that sophisticated, but I think there's a lot of um, cool opportunities that lie within, you know, these these 3D objects and really how to interpret them and and really what to do with them and how much more we can really build on top of it and um, yeah so i mean thanks for for sharing that that article in the in the chat but uh, yeah i just want to bring that up with you guys and see what you think great awesome thanks for uh yeah thanks for updating us on your uh, pomelo project during the off season we like to encourage that uh these days and if, uh, if anyone's listening to this, want to continue the conversation, join us on Pomelo Telegram channel in the Shill and Share progress topic. Jean posted uh, some of his updates there earlier today. And so you can uh, always jump in there and uh, join the conversation, ask some questions if you want to at some later point. All right. Thanks for joining us, Jean. Thanks for the update. Thanks.
Looks like we won't make it to two hours today. First time in a long time. Well, we're pretty close, only 15 minutes, 15 more minutes. We did get some nice attendance today. I think I saw 86 people uh, joining at the same time on Discord. Very cool. Plus, of course, everyone else watching on Telegram. Uh, I mean, on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for joining us. If you're joining us from out there, like, subscribe, hit the bell, do all the things. Help us increase the engagement on this content and help us spread this content across the internet and crypto space. Nathan James mentioned they're doing more Twitter spaces these days. I was invited on a couple of them recently. Uh, just yesterday, I hosted one on the intersection of GameFi and DeFi. It was pretty interesting. Had a couple representatives from a couple projects from across different networks. Had a nice conversation. You can check out that uh, recording probably on the ENF Twitter uh, newsfeed. All right, last call to register for your pop tokens for today. Get on over there in the pop bot chat. Sign up, get your pop token. Blend four of them into your monthly raffle ticket. And then hopefully uh, we'll be able to distribute the prizes for the July monthly raffle sometime in the next week. There's another, there's a new distribution tool for NFTs on EOS that I'm going to be test driving next week. So I'm hoping we'll be able to use that tool to distribute these raffle packs uh, more quickly in the future. As for the June raffle packs, I think most of those have been distributed by now. Maybe just a couple more that are left to be distributed. Uh, but if you held your raffle ticket for June, check your account. All of them just now. There you go. Thanks, Yana, for confirming. So if you had a June raffle ticket, check your account. You can open up your raffle pack and good luck finding some EOS, finding some EOS moments or even some party crackers. All right, I guess that's it for today. We're gonna wrap it up here. Thank you everyone for joining. Thanks for those who participated in today's conversation. Big thanks to our superstar guests that joined us today. We had Guillaume, we had Areg, we had Nathan James, we had Aaron, some of the top devs in the space joining us today. Always fun to hear from them, even though I may not understand everything. Um, so that's going to wrap it up for today. Hope you hope everyone has a good week, and we'll do it all over again next week. Bye-bye, everyone. And let's go, EOS! Yes!